Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to know your love and glory. And I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are full for one another and for you. And that we would know and love you, love one another, and love holiness. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I pray that you'd protect us from the evil one who wants to come and steal the word away and to make it unfruitful. I pray that you'd help your word to go forth, to be planted, to make deep roots, and to bear rich fruit among your people. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I attended a Christmas party hosted by a longtime friend of mine who is an unbeliever. And I was there with my wife and with our kiddos, and we were all mixing in with the crowd. And at one point during the party, my friend, who's an unbeliever, and I found ourselves away from the crowd and kind of by ourselves in this little hallway. And it was at this time that he came out to me uh, for the first time. And he just looks at me and he says, you, you know that I'm gay, right? And I responded, well, you know, I kind of suspected, you know, we'd never talked about it, but I kind of suspected. And he says to me, well, you know, so-and-so over here, who's also at the party, who you met earlier, he's my partner. We've been together for, for 13 years. And I think my friend was sharing this with me and delivering this news to me with a little bit of trepidation because he knows I'm a Christian. And I, he probably just wasn't sure how I would respond to, to this. And um, so I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but I thanked him for telling me, and I, I did everything I could just to try to assure him that I still loved him. He was you know, still my friend, and none of that was, was changed. And, of course, that was, that was true. I, I did love him, and I, I do love him. And at, at that time, we stayed at the party, my family and I. We enjoyed ourselves, my wife and my kids. We, we met and received not only my friend, but also uh, his partner. Um, I love my unbelieving friend, I loved him before he gave me this news. I loved him after he gave me this news. Nothing changed because of this revelation. And I think he sensed that, and I really think he appreciated it. Uh, so much so that even though he's not a professing believer of any kind, he showed up to church the next time I preached just to hear me preach. And I think the calculation was kind of straightforward. Uh, you know, you went out of your way to be, you know, show, show love and concern to me, and I'm going to go out of my way to show love and concern to you. I'm not really interested in this, but I'm going to come listen to you preach. And so both of those events happened, you know, the party and then him coming to hear me preach. They happened with, within days of one another. And, but, but after this mutual expression of goodwill, some time went on. And as many of you know, I write a lot publicly about sexuality from a, a biblical perspective. And my friend discovered that even though things had gone really well when he had um, come out to me, my Christian views on things hadn't changed. I was still preaching the same gospel that I preached before then. And I was still believing what the Bible teaches about sexuality, the same thing I believed before he, he told me that. And I think he thought maybe that my views would have changed. Um, and probably maybe he thought they had changed as a result of the way that we responded to him at, at the party. Um, but, but they really hadn't. My views hadn't changed at all. And that led to this really long series of pretty intense conversations between me and him in which I tried to explain to him. The gist of it was this. I was trying to explain to him, yes, I, I love you and still care for you as my friend, but no, I don't affirm sexual immorality, what the Bible teaches to be wrong. And the heart of the conflict really came down to this. He, he 
he couldn't accept the proposition that you could really love and care for someone without affirming their sexuality. On his view, you must love the sinner and the sin, and it's impossible to love the sinner in spite of sin. And so we kind of were at an impasse with, with each other. My friend had mistakenly, I believe, assumed that large-hearted love is incompatible with moral discernment and holiness. And I don't think that he's alone in that mistake. There are many people who operate on the assumption that love doesn't merely overlook a transgression, it affirms a transgression. After all, the Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. And you can't really be a loving person if you're judgmental and you're showing moral discernment about things. I wonder how many of you have ever let your own thinking be influenced by this kind of error. The idea that the more love and care you have for people, the less concerned you are about holiness. And conversely, the more you care about holiness, the less you are going to be able to love people. It's as if those two things are at odd with one another. And yet this is not at all what the Bible teaches. It's certainly not what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians. Paul over and over again affirms his love, his real, intense, willing to suffer for them love. He affirms that, and yet he's also calling them to holiness. In fact, it would be correct to say that he loves them by calling them to holiness. Love and holiness are not enemies. In God's world and by God's design, they are the best of friends. But here's the question. Do you, in your heart, regard them as the best of friends? Now, in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is going to bring love and holiness together as friends. If you haven't already, I want you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 11 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 11 to 18. We already looked at the first half of chapter 6 the last time I was up, and we saw that Paul explains how he had commended himself as a servant of Christ to the Corinthians that he was writing to. But he doesn't commend himself by talking a big game, he commends himself by walking a big game. In other words, he doesn't. He does, he does a lot more showing than he does telling. He, he basically tell, he, he lets them know that he endured hardships for them. He manifested the fruit of the Spirit in their presence. He persevered and endured all kinds of hardships for them. And so he's shown his heart to them by the way that he's lived his life and conducted his ministry among them. And so they know who he is. And now, in the, in the second half of chapter 6, on the basis of that track record with them, he's going to call the Corinthians to love and to holiness themselves. He's going to say, you need to lead the kind of life that I, I've been leading before you. And so he's going to call them to three things, and here's, here's the message. He's going to call them to have a heart for mutual affection. He's calling them to have a heart for purity and a heart for separation. A heart for mutual affection in verses 11 to 13. A heart for purity in verses 14 to 16. And a heart for separation in verses 17 through 18. So the first thing he's calling them to is to have a heart for mutual affection. Everybody look what he says there in verse 11. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Now, just to remind you again, Paul's using that figure of speech with his first person plural pronouns. So when he says we and us, he means I and we. And I really want you to see this in this passage because I don't want it to be lost on you how personal Paul is being with them. He's saying to them, I have spoken to you freely, Corinthians. My heart is open to you. In other words, he's saying to them, look, in spite of all the conflict, that we've had with one another. He's saying in spite of all that, 
He's saying that he wants them to know that his heart is still full for them. He doesn't mince words with them. He gives them the truth and he does it as an overflow of his love for them. He says his heart is wide open to them. In fact, he says in the first half of verse 12, he says, he says, you are not restricted in me. Some of your translations, if you're looking like at the ESV, it says uh, you're not restricted by me. But I don't think that's actually correct. I think literally he's, he's saying it's you're not restricted in me. And what he means by that is that he doesn't have the Corinthians cordoned off into some small and confined, restricted place in his heart. So they, they are filling his heart. That's, that's what he wants them to know. They're not restricted in him. He, he's basically saying it's, it's not like the, the toilet brush in your house, which you try to put in one place, out of the way and out of sight, maybe behind the toilet, but definitely restricted to one place. You don't want the toilet brush touching anything, right? You don't put it in the pantry. At least I hope you don't, okay? Uh, you don't put the toilet brush on the mantelpiece. It's hidden in a cramped place and only brought out when necessary. And Paul is saying that they're not like the toilet brush. They aren't in some small restricted place in his heart where he's trying to keep out of sight and only bringing out when, when necessary. That's not what it is. He's saying that his love and affection for them are overflowing in, in his heart. And so the expression that he, 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 he's bringing forth here, it kind of brings to mind what he told the, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. He says, but we proved gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. This, this, is, how God, this is how Paul feels about God's people. He loves them. He has affection for them. And in spite of all their stubbornness and sin, his affection for them is still overflowing in his heart. But here's the problem. The feeling isn't mutual. Look at verse 12. He says, you are not restricted in us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Paul's love for them is open and flowing freely, but that's not how they're feeling towards him. In their hearts, Paul is a little bit too much like that toilet brush. One commentator says it this way, quote, They have allowed the events of the past and the criticisms leveled against their apostle to restrict the breadth, and their, of, the breadth of their affection for him. Close quote. So it's, so it's like their attitude is this towards Paul. Look, Paul, you have a place in our heart. We have a little plot for you, but please stay in your place. We don't want to see you in the pantry or on the mantle or sitting out on the living room couch. You have a place. Stay in your place. And so Paul's just essentially saying to them, look, that, that's not going to do. If they are cold towards Paul and their affections, Paul, Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ. If they're cold towards him, that means they are cold towards the agent of God's word to them. And it's not right, nor is it safe for them to feel that way about an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he says what he says in verse 13. He says, verse 13, in return, I speak as the children, widen your hearts also. Now, notice that word widen is a command and it's the same word that Paul used of himself to describe his feelings for them in verse 11. So the argument's really simple. He's saying, look, my heart is open wide to you. In return, you open your heart wide to me. In other words, he's telling them that the feelings need to be mutual. Well, why is that? First of all, because it's right. It is the royal law, right? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, right? So it's, it's right for them to do this. It's the, it's the characteristic mark of the Christian that we love each other. 
But it's not just because it's right. It's because also it's good for them. They need to hear the voice of the Apostle Paul. And they're not going to hear him and be sensitized to what he's telling them from the Lord if he's occupying the place of a toilet brush in their heart. If, if one of my kids comes and says to me, Daddy, I'm really struggling right now. I don't have any friends at school. Hardly anyone talks to me. The ones that do talk to me make fun of me. Last night I couldn't sleep. I just stared at the ceiling and cried myself to sleep. What's wrong with me, Daddy? Why, what's, why is this happening to me? If one of my kids comes to me and says that to me, how, how am I going to respond to my kid? Do I say, well, you know, young daughter, my office hours are from 9 to 11 on Thursdays. Let's talk about this then. You know, unless I want my child to feel like the toilet brush, that's not what I'm going to say to them. Nor is it what I want to say to them. If one of my kids comes to me and says something like that to me, guess what? Well, everything stops. Whatever I'm doing, I'm going to stop doing at that moment. And all my attention and focus are going to go to that child. And the reason is because my heart is overflowing with love and affection for my children. They have my whole heart. And that's what Paul says he feels about the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? You know what that means? Paul's basically saying, when you hurt, I hurt. When you struggle, I struggle. And you know why that is. Because that's the way it is when you really love somebody. Their hurts become your hurts. Their struggles become your struggles. Their concerns become your concerns. And that's what he's saying to the Corinthians. He feels this way because he loves them. And he wants them to have the same love for him. Now, I think there's an application here, both for those who preach the word of God and for those who have the word of God preached to them. If you're a pastor, fellow elders in the room, if you're aspiring to be a pastor, you need to have a heart that overflows with love for God's people. You can't serve people that you have contempt for. You have to have a love that's overflowing towards God's people. In spite of all their difficulties, in spite of whatever conflicts you may have with some of them, you got to love them like Paul loves. Even in spite of all their conflicts, their hurts are his hurts, their concerns are his concerns. Your heart needs to be full of affection and care for God's people. So there's an application for those who preach the word of God to God's people. But there's an application for those who have the word of God preached to them. You need to have a heart that overflows with love and respect for those who lead you. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable to you. Your pastors are not going to be perfect. If you want to say amen, that's okay. <laughs> um, we're not going to be perfect, y'all. We're going to blow it sometimes. We're going to have to ask your forgiveness sometimes. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to disappoint you from time to time. But this text is saying you've got to open up your heart anyway. You've got to open wide your heart to the faithful ministry of the word. And you need to love those who minister the word to you. You need to love them for that. So Paul is calling for the Corinthians to have a heart for mutual affection. In verses 11 through 13, the feeling needs to be mutual. But he also calls them to have a heart for purity. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
Now, it may be that we live in a day and time right now that I don't need to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, just in case. Um, I grew up in the Deep South, and I would hear from time to time a really gross distortion, erroneous abuse of this particular verse. Um, I don't know if any of you ever heard this. Maybe some of you, you, you did. But I used to hear people making the case that it's wrong for black people and white people to be married. And some of them would try to argue for it, quoting this verse. And they would say, don't be unequally yoked. You can't put two, two different kind of people together. Don't be unequally yoked. And they would claim that this verse prohibits you know, what was called misogynation. And so this verse has been distorted by some people to support segregation and especially to prevent interracial marriages. I just want to say, in, in case, I don't know, anybody's ever heard that or had that taught to them, that point of view is without question a racist distortion of the plain meaning of this text. And all you have to do is to read the whole verse. It says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul is not prohibiting the union of races, but the union of believers and unbelievers. His concern isn't racial, it's spiritual. He wants to prevent believers from being yoked together with unbelievers. So it would be evil and wrong for a white believer to be yoked together with a white unbeliever. The, the race isn't the issue. It's the believing status that's the issue. And it can be glorious and good for a white believer to be yoked together with a black believer. This is not about race, which is a fiction anyway. There's only one race, the human race. And when any believers of, any, of the human race are yoked together, that can be a glorious and good thing, no matter the melanin content of their skin. So the question that we have to answer is, what does it really mean to be yoked together? Now, to answer that question, we have to remember what a yoke is. Y'all know what a yoke is? So this is kind of an agrarian image. But a yoke is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two different animals and attached to a plow or to a cart so that they can pull the plow or the cart. And so before plowing and hauling were, were mechanized, you had animals that were mainly doing that work, maybe an ox or a horse or some other beast of burden. And if you wanted two animals to, to pull together a, a cart or a plow, you could yoke them together with this wooden bean and, combi and combine their strength as they pulled, whatever it was they were pulling. So many commentators believe that, that Paul's prohibition, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is really him uh, giving an application of, of Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 22 verse 10 says this, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So the question, you look at that in Deuteronomy, you go, well, why? What's wrong with plowing with an ox and a donkey together? Well, in addition to the unholiness of unnatural combinations, which is a part of what's going on in Deuteronomy, it's really a bad idea practically to put two different species of animals under the same yoke because they have different strength, they have a different gait, they have different temperaments. So to put it in simple terms, to maybe put it in human terms, how many of you have ever been in a three-legged race before? Your leg is strapped to a partner's leg, and the two of you have to coordinate your movement in order to win the race without falling down or hurting each other. And the closer you are in size, the better you're going to do in the race. But the more disparity in size, the more difficult the race is going to be. So, I, you know, I'm six foot three inches tall. You know, imagine if I tried to run a three-legged race with my little girl who's eight years old. You know, I would have to slow down considerably. You know, I would not be able to run the race that I would want to run if I were going to do that. Now, that would be difficult if it were, you know, just with a smaller human. But can you imagine how much more difficult it would be if I tried to do a three-legged race strapped to a different species? I mean, what if I had to do a three-legged race with a cat as my partner? You'd want to get that on video, right? I mean, you, 
you'd want to watch this. Now, I might be interested in winning the race, but that cat's not interested in winning the race. That cat is concerned about one thing. What's that cat wanting to do? It's wanting to get unfastened from me. That's all that cat wants to do. I may be trying to run, but that cat's going in the opposite direction. And that cat's going to bite and squirm and scratch until he's out. I can try to carry the cat while strapped to my leg. But he's going to spit and scratch me if I try, right? It's a disaster if you yoke together two runners who by nature are not going to run in the same direction. But who are going to be pulling each other in opposite directions. Someone or something is going to get hurt. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying that you as a believer... You can't yoke yourself to an unbeliever because you're both, by nature, going to be running in different directions. And you're just going to push and pull and scratch and spit at each other until one or both of you get hurt. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. Well, why? Well, Paul is going to explain why with these five rhetorical questions. These five questions are tantamount to making statements, okay? But they're just rhetorical questions, and they're the, he's providing the reasons for why this is not going to work, to be unequally yoked like this. So look at verse 14. He says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now the answer to these two questions, and indeed the answer to all five of these questions, is Nothing. <laughs> There is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There's no fellowship between light and darkness. On God's reckoning, nothing that you do can be both righteous and lawless at the same time. It has to be one or the other, but it can't be both. Why? Because righteousness and lawlessness are polar opposites. They have nothing in common. Same thing with light and darkness. There's no fellowship between the two because they're opposites. And the presence of the one is by definition the negation of the other. When you walk into a dark room and click the light on, guess what disappears? Darkness. You click the lights off, guess what returns? Darkness. But you can't have them both at the same time. Look at verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? It's interesting that word that's translated in the ESV as accord is the Greek term symphonesis. Symphonesis. What word do we get from that? Symphony, right? Um, it, it, the, the word in Greek literally means to, uh, something like to sound together or to be in harmony or in unison. But the word came to be used in time to refer not merely to agreement in sounds, but to agreement in general. And that's what it means in this verse. Paul's saying, what agreement is there between Christ and Belial? And the answer is nothing. And the reason why there's no agreement between Christ and Belial is because Belial is that name that's given to the chief of demons. Um, you, you really see this more in early ancient Jewish literature outside of the Bible. But Belial is a name given to the chief of demons in, in like the Dead Sea Scrolls and this, this other literature. But the chief of demons is Satan himself. What does Satan have in common with Jesus? Well, the answer is nothing. Everything about them is at cross purposes. In fact, the Hebrew word Satan, what does it mean? It means adversary. Someone who's set against another person. There's no agreement there, only enmity. He says, what portion does a believer have share with an unbeliever? The answer is no portion. When it comes to the deep things, this is Paul's point. It's not like we're different species. Okay, don't press my previous analogy too far. We're not different species, but we are profoundly different. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? When it comes to the deep things of life, believers and unbelievers have some profound differences with one another. Some weeks ago, I went to dinner with an unbelieving friend that I've known since childhood. Great to see him. We can reminisce. 
Uh, we can talk about our jobs and our families. We can talk about how our, our old friends are doing from high school. Guess what we can't talk about? Or at least when we do talk about it, it gets a little strained. <laughs> God, the Bible, morality, the meaning of life. Uh, when we get to those subjects, we, there, there can be conflict. Why is that? Because there's no shared portion between believer and unbeliever when it comes to the, the really deep things of life. And so Paul's saying, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer, nothing. There's no agreement. Open up the Old Testament. Look what it says about the temple. Look what it says about idolatry. Guess what? Idolatry is in the Big Ten. You shall not make for yourselves a graven image. Okay, idolatry is in the Ten Commandments. It's absolutely prohibited. So idolatry, is that allowed? No, it's not. Is it allowed in the temple? No. When you have an idol showing up in the temple in Jerusalem, that's apocalyptic. It's called the abomination of desolation. But think about this. There's no physical temple in Jerusalem anymore. So how, how does this apply to us? Well, look at the next verse. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You may recognize some of those phrases, I will make my dwelling among them in, in following, because it's combining two texts from the Old Testament, one of them, that was read earlier, Ezekiel 37, 27, and the other, Leviticus 26, 12. Paul's kind of putting these verses together. And if you look at these verses together, it's referring to the Bible's teaching about how God would relate to his people in the new covenant. He promised to dwell with his people and to walk among his people. He would be theirs and they would be his in the new covenant. So if the physical temple is no longer standing in Jerusalem, but God is living in and amongst his people, according to Old Testament prophets, promise what's that mean it means that we're the temple we are the ones in whom and among whom god dwells and if we are god's temple and we are then we can no more have fellowship with idolatry than the temple could house a statue to zeus it's just unthinkable that you could put the two together so you can't yoke together people who are by nature opposed to one another. If you do, they're going to be frustrated. They're likely going to hurt each other. And you're going to be doing a three-legged race with a house cat. And it's just not going to work. So the big question here practically for us is what kind of relationships constitute being yoked together? That, that's the big question. The most obvious one and the one that's most often spoke of in connection with, with this text is, is marriage. It's not the only relationship. I think this text has a broader application and probably has a, bro a broader meaning than, than referring to just marriage. But I think marriage is included in that because there's, there's no more intimate alliance or relationship on earth than that of marriage. It's very much, marriage is very much a relational yoke that you put on. And it requires you to walk together in the same direction with the person that you're yoked to. But what's a Christian to do if you ignore this command and you decide, I'm not going to worry about being unequally yoked. I'll, I'll just be unequally yoked. What's a Christian, what's going to happen in that kind of a scenario? What's a Christian going to do if she yokes herself to a spiritual equivalent of a house cat? She might be able to talk about the house with her husband. She might be able to talk about the in-laws, about their work. She might be able to talk about the bank account or any number of things that they have in common. But when it comes to the deep things, who God is, who the Bible is, how you're going to raise the children, how you're going to care for each other, how to honor each other's parents, on and on and on. When it comes to those things, the most important things, the most crucial things to have in, in common, she yokes herself to an unbeliever. She's going to be doing a three-legged race with a wildcat. 
And that wife and that husband are liable to hurt each other in deep and profound ways. It's going to be a struggle. I spoke at a, a men's retreat one time where this married man comes up to me and told me that he was having struggles with pornography. And he said he had pretty well resolved to quit it and was doing pretty well, but his problem was his wife. She wasn't a believer. She didn't want to quit it. She was using pornography regularly and she was pushing it on her husband because she wanted it to be a part of their marital relationship. This man was unequally yoked. And he and his wife were going in opposite directions. But of course, when you're married, you don't... That's a permanent union that can only be broken by certain um, calamities that happen that break the covenant. But there he was. He was unequally yoked. So that's why, and I'm thinking about single people right now, that's why singles, the most important quality that you're looking for in a spouse is not how good looking they are. It's not how rich they are, how funny they are. The most important question is whether or not they are a Christian. And not just whether they claim to be a Christian, but whether they have the character and the godliness to back up that claim. If they don't have the character of a Christian, you need to walk away. Don't get yourself yoked to an unbeliever and find yourself in a three-legged race with a tiger that's trying to pull you in every which direction. It's better not to get married at all than to get into that kind of a situation. Somebody says, well, Denny, uh, haven't you ever read 1 Corinthians 7? You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he tells believers not to divorce their unbelieving spouses because their family is sanctified through staying in that marriage. Yes, I have read that. And you need to obey that. But here's the thing. Yes, Paul does say that, but the situation is different. Um, the situation there is of uh, an unbelieving couple, and God intervenes in one of their lives and saves them. If you are already married when God calls you to himself and saves you, then yes, he is calling you to that marriage to sanctify and to evangelize it. If God calls you in that way, then you can have great comfort and hope that God is gracious aims for that family he has called you to be as a believer in that family so god may call you into that situation but he does not authorize you to call yourself into that situation that's a far different thing than a disobedient christian deciding to put themselves in an unequally yoked situation by knowingly marrying someone who's an unbeliever in fact, in that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells Christian widows that they're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39. The widow's free to marry, but she's not free to marry anyone. She must marry a, a Christian. So that's just the norm for Christianity. It's discipleship 101. You don't become unequally yoked in your marriage to an unbeliever. So Christian, if you're single and you find yourself becoming attracted to an unbelieving friend and you begin to think to yourself, well, maybe I should just go with this and let it happen. No, you shouldn't. You are not free to yoke yourself to an unbeliever like that. You are free to marry, but only in the Lord. And you need to know that God gives us this direction for our good. He's not trying to hurt you in this. He's trying to help you. So don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But, but I don't think this command about being unequally yoked is, is limited to marriage. There are any number of relationships that you could get yourself into that might involve you being yoked to someone in a way that's compromising to you if they are an unbeliever. It could be a business relationship. It might be putting yourself in the employ of a certain kind of employer it takes biblical wisdom and maturity to sort this out because Paul does not intend for people to cut off all relationships with unbelievers. That's not the point here. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 
in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with swindlers or with idolaters. For then you'd have to go out of the world. I, look, I told you not to associate with immoral people. I'm not talking about lost people who are out in the world. I'm talking about people who claim to be a brother, but they're acting like a hypocrite. You have to discipline those people. I'm not talking about lost people. You, you can't go out of the world. You got to be around law. You got to be around unbelievers. So Paul wants us to be in the world. He just doesn't want the world to be in us. But how do we know the difference? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives us a little bit of a hint about this. Paul tells the Corinthians that they can go to dinner with unbelievers. Remember that? Go to dinner with unbelievers, eat what's set before you. You don't, you don't even have to ask where the meat came from. You don't have to ask if it came from an idol's temple. Just don't worry about it. You can go to dinner with unbelievers, but he also tells them in that same chapter that they can't go to dinner with unbelievers if they're eating in an idol's temple. If that relationship is by definition going to involve you in idolatry or some sort of compromise of holiness, well, no, you can't do that. So it's good and right and normal for you to have friendships with unbelievers, but if aspects of that friendship carry you away into faithlessness, you're gonna, you may find yourself in an unequally yoked sort of a situation. And you need to get that yoke that's pulling you away from Christ off of you. So you're going to have to work with and work for people who are unbelievers. That's good and right and normal. It's also a great opportunity for, for the gospel. But if your employment places a yoke on you that begins to pull you away from Christ... You're going to have to figure that out and break free of it. It's going to take biblical wisdom to know whether and how to make the break. You know, if a member comes to me, a member of this church comes to me and says, you know, I really struggle at my work. I want to be a good witness, but the work that we do makes it really, really hard. And I say, well, you know, what do you do? And they say, well, I work at the abortion clinic. Well, you're unequally yoked. There's no way for you to row in the right direction and work there. I work at the pornography shop. Oh, you're unequally yoked. You're not going to be able to, you can't row in the right direction and witness and work there. There are some things you cannot attach yourselves to, and you can't attach yourself to that. So we don't make alliances that we know at the outset militate against the holiness of God in our lives. We don't become any unequally yoked. So Paul says we have to have a heart for mutual affection, a heart for purity. The last thing, we have to have a heart for separation. Look at verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then, I will welcome you. And we have two verses here in verse 17 and verse 18 that are exhorting God's people to embrace a principle of separation in their lives. And it's, I think it's really along these lines. Of, um, this separation is along the lines of, of what we've just seen in the previous verses. There are some relationships that yoke you to ungodliness and you're going to have to Refrain from attaching yourself to some tiger in a three-legged race. You just It's not going to work. Now, verse 17 is a modified quotation of a part of Isaiah 52.11. And if you look at Isaiah 52.11, in that verse, God is commanding Israel to come out from Babylon. So Babylon... That's where the Gentiles are, unbelievers, idolaters. Israel, come out from Babylon. I think in the same way, Paul is calling us to come out from among the ungodly when we find ourselves yoked to them in ways that compromise. Again, this does not mean that we run from friendships with unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. But it does mean that we don't get yoked together with unbelievers. We are to be separate from them and their ways, even if our friendship is, you know, a vital friendship. We love them, but we don't love or walk in the lawlessness that they are still enslaved in. And we do this because we care about holiness. And the Bible says, Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, 
no one will see the Lord. And you're not going to be the exception to that. If we want to be received by the Lord, we must embrace his purpose of holiness in our lives. And sometimes that means a separation. So you have to embrace that. Look at verse 18. He says, if you'll be separate from them, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 18 is a really extraordinary statement because it's a modification of 2 Samuel 7.14. And you may recognize 2 Samuel 7.14 as um, when Nathan was talking to David. It was basically the establishment of the Davidic covenant. And God is saying of David, look, I'm going to give you a son. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. And you have the Davidic covenant based on this promise. Well, now Paul is taking this and he's applying it to us, to believers. He's saying, embracing the holiness of God for our lives. When you do that, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. He's saying this applies to all of us. This means that if you really want to know God, you are going to have to let go of your idols in order to have them. You can have your idols or you can have him, but you can't have both. You're going to have to be willing to separate from idols. Now, we have to be careful here because even though we're called to be separate, that doesn't mean that we're called to be separatistic. What do I mean by that? I don't think this means that we need to go off and form our own little parallel communities that don't interface at all with unbelievers. There are certain sects of Christianity that do that. You know, in my hometown, there was a certain uh, kind of Mennonite. Not all Mennonites do this, but they kind of keep to themselves. And in, in our community, we just didn't know them. They kind of kept to their own church, to their own property. They, they just didn't do any interface. Uh, there are some Amish communities that are like this. There, there's some, some good things about them, but I, th I think this is not a good thing, that they're so separate. There's almost, there's very little interface or not enough interface with the outside world. Remember what Jesus prayed for us in his high priestly prayer. This is John 17, verse 15 and 18. He says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, which means make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. God has sent us into the world. He intends for us to have real friendships, real relationships with unbelievers. But he also intends for us in the midst of that to be holy. And so Jesus is praying for us to be holy, not to be taking us out of the world. He intends for us to be in the world. He prays for us to be holy by taking the world out of us while we're still living in the world. So he wants us to be in the world, not of the world, for the sake of the world. That's the plan. And so the question that we have, we have to ask ourselves is, are we ready for this? Are we ready to be in the world, not of the world, for the sake of the world? To be ready for that, you're going to have to have a heart for mutual affection. If you're preaching the word of God, affection for God's people. If you're receiving the word of God, affection for the one delivering the word to you. You're going to have to have a heart for purity. You're going to have to have a heart that sometimes embraces a principle of separation. Love and holiness are not at odds. They go together. And Paul says that they must come together in us. If you're here this morning and you know that you fall into the category of being an unbeliever, you know that um, you haven't trusted Christ. Listen, the Bible says that you have a great need in your life. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. You're sitting in a room filled with sinners. 
But the Bible says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And there's nothing you can do to earn that salvation. Jesus earned it all. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sin, death. And he was raised from the dead so that he could give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. All you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Christ, and the Bible says that you will be saved. If you haven't done that, you need to do that this morning. You need to trust and believe in Christ. None of this is going to make sense until you do. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would make us a holy people, committed to your word, committed to each other. Lord, I pray that you'd make us into the image of your own dear son. I pray that whatever idols are in our hands, that we would drop them. And I pray that you would help us to be wise, not to be unequally yoked, but to be separate from what you've called us to be separate from. Lord, I pray for a husband or a wife in this room who find themselves, for whatever reason, in a difficult marriage. Lord, I pray, 1 Corinthians 7, for them, that their marriage would be sanctified by their presence in it and that you would encourage them and that you would show new covenant power in that, in that marriage. But for all those contemplating marriage and contemplating relationships that maybe they know they shouldn't get in, Lord, I pray that you would bring this word to their mind, plant it in their heart, and help them to be obedient. For any unbelievers that are here, I pray that you would open up their hearts to believe the gospel. And I pray that you do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.